Hello and welcome to another exciting season of Modern Day Philosophers. This is season six. I am Danny Lobel, and I can't tell you how excited I am to kick it off with Jackie Mason. Jackie Mason, Jackie Mason, Jackie Mason, Jackie Mason, Jackie Mason, the man, the myth, the legend, the guy who for so many years I spent breakfasts, lunches, and dinners hanging out with and talking about comedy and countless adventures and stories around New York City from my 20s involved Jackie Mason. He was pretty much a best friend of mine for years, despite our many years age difference. I worked for him. He gave me a job selling his merchandise on Broadway. He, he introduced me to George Carlin, uh, which led to a wonderful friendship with George Carlin until George passed away. And when George died, Jackie called me up and he said, you know, Georgie Carlin, he was more than a comedian. I think he was even a modern day philosopher. And, I, and, and that stuck with me, that modern day philosopher. And that inspired this show that you're going to listen to uh, right now that you have listened to in the past. It got me thinking how comedians at their very best are indeed also philosophizing up there. And the guys who I love, Jackie and George Carlin and the late, great Patrice O'Neill and Bill Burr and Colin Quinn, they're so funny, but they're also, to me, philosophers. And that's, that's how this show came about. And the other way this show comes about is by the generous sponsorship from people like the man who this next message comes to you from. Roll the clip. Warning, stand-up records may cause intestinal distress, fits of insane laughter, instant diarrhea, existential malaise, headaches, nausea, dizziness, vomiting, seasonal affective disorder, more headaches, pneumomono-ultramicroscopic silico-volcanoconiosis. Stand-up records should not be handled by women who are pregnant, may become pregnant, have ever been pregnant, or personally know anyone who has been pregnant. Do not consult your doctor if he's operating heavy machinery. Stand-up records is for external application only. And stand-up records is, of course, good for a few laughs. So remember that StandUpRecords.com. For the world's finest comedy CDs, DVDs, and merchandise. That's StandUpRecords.com. The revolution will be hilarious. There you have it, Stand Up Records, the best, the best place to get comedy albums, DVDs, CDs, anything you want. Go to, well, not anything you want, within reason, whatever they have, StandUpRecords.com. Go check it out, and thank you again, Dan Schlissel, for your undying loyalty and support for this show. I love you. Okay. I met Jackie at his apartment to do the interview, and he said, I don't want to do it in the interview. Why should we do it in the apartment? We should be out and get the ambient noise of New York City. It's more interesting for people to listen to it. Why does somebody want to listen to an interview? If it's just in an apartment, it's not interesting. With the way we always talk anyway, it's in a diner. People should experience the way we really talk. So I said, I, I'm, I'm afraid that you're going to get drowned out by the noise. He goes, why would I get drowned out by the noise? We'll find a place where it's not so loud, and then we'll be able to record. So... We went to one diner, and I said, I think it is too loud. Here it goes, if you think it's too loud, I don't think it's so loud, but if you think it's too loud, we'll find another place. So we go to another place. I said, this is okay. He goes, I think you're crazy. You said, the other place is too loud. This place is even louder than the other place. This is a way worse place. I can't do it here. So I said, okay, how about this place? I had a falling out with this place. How about that place? I don't like the food at that place. And then we went to another place. He says, I got the perfect place. We get to that place. He goes, I can't believe this place is closed down. It was open a week ago. So we get into a cab, and he says, I know the perfect place, the Times Square Diner, and we we head over there, and sure enough, it was a good place to record. It was quiet enough, and that's where we did the interview. And uh, if you listen to the wrap-up show, you know that uh, I hadn't been in touch with Jackie for years. And uh, we just reconnected, and it's wonderful. It's wonderful to have him back in my life. It's great to be talking to him on the phone again. The man means so much to me, and I cannot wait for you to listen to this interview. So without further ado, my talk with the great, the legend, the genius... The comic genius, Jackie Mason, right after the intro song. Enjoy. Hello, and welcome. 
to Modern Day Philosophers. Modern Day Philosophers. Having failed to pay attention in school, Danny Lobel, now older and wiser, will attempt to learn basic philosophy 101. Our young hero will be joined by today's top comedians, philosophers all their own. Ladies and gentlemen, here's Danny Lobel. Modern Day Philosophers. I'm sitting here at the Times Square Diner with the man who's not only probably responsible for this show, but also probably responsible for this guy's career. I, uh, I give you a, a tremendous amount of credit. Well, I'm glad, I'm glad that your career developed because of me. I'm proud that I had such a great influence on you. I thought that if I gave you, if you were influenced by me, by now, you wouldn't be, you wouldn't try to get even with me by having me work for nothing. <laughs> As if this is all I got out of all my influence for you, and this is how you express your appreciation by giving me a job to work for nothing for an hour. Yeah, you really should. And if that's the case, if that's what I accomplished, I wish I'd never met you in the first place. You should have mentored somebody else. If I meet another guy like you, I'll be wiped out altogether. <laughs> how many guys like you do you think I could afford? Them? <laughs> so do you remember? Do you remember? Years ago, all the times we hung out together? I remember. I'm sorry to tell you that I do remember. (laughs) (laughs) And when I see a guy this size, I don't start an argument. I think if he wants to talk, I better answer him. That's how I wound up doing this interview. You think I was happy to do this? But I saw you standing in front of me. I said, you're doing the interview. I said, it's up to you. (laughs) I miss this. If I gained weight and I was a little healthier... You can bet your life you wouldn't see me here. <laughs> I really miss I really miss all those times hanging out with you at the Aubon Pan. There was always an interesting group of people, professors, uh, attorneys, businessmen, yeah, policemen, yeah, and it, people are enforcing the law. People are looking for me. People are look, trying to catch me who haven't caught me yet. But I managed to continue to work it out. Because the truth of the matter is that most people who think they're celebrities think they're too important to talk to the average person. But it's only the average person that you learn everything about life from. The average person has a point of view that's in more, much more independent and free thinking and more original and creative than the average than the average philosopher, than the average professor. A professor only knows what he was taught and he's always repeating what he read in the book. In show business, I feel that's especially true. I feel like everybody is uh, is just kind of copying whatever the other people say. And if you don't get out of that bubble, you just wind up repeating and regurgitating the same thoughts, ideas, and values. Right. It's an amazing thing how you could repeat what I said, you put it in your own words, and then you feel like you accomplished something. <laughs> <laughs> he just repeated what I said. But uh, <laughs> and he, and he, he repeats it like, like I wasn't talking English. And he had a, and he, he had to repeat it so that he could explain to people what I was talking about. Right. For your information, I was also talking English. I know it was too much of an accent for you to realize it. Um, what I've one so thing that I needed an interpreter. What'd you say? One thing that's always struck me about you, but. To, to the effect of what you're talking about is that I always feel when I'm with you that I'm I'm hanging out with not just a comedian but a detective. You're always at, you ask, where'd you come from? How'd you get here? 
Yeah, and, and that's, I think that's probably what makes you so sharp about, in, in terms of comedically, is that you're very, very detail-attentive. Not so much that I detail this as much as I am curious. I'm always curious to understand and appreciate what the other person's life, what the other person's life is about. How they go through their life and how, how they experience it. And what's so different about one individual from another. It's amazing how people are all the same, but they're not the same to the extent that you can't see the difference between one person and another. Mm-hmm. Because everybody is so involved in his own life that he's experiencing things in his own terms, in his own way, that the other person would never feel or appreciate. Everybody in his own way is living his own life. And and if you look into it, you'll always find that it's different in some peculiar ways that's, that's true only unto himself. There's still a distinguishing factor somehow between every person you meet if you look deeply enough into it. If you're curious enough about it, you'll find that each person has certain quirks and weird ways of thinking and strange qualities in his behavior, somehow something that differentiates him from other people. That makes each person individual, just like there's no two faces that are exactly the same, mm-hmm. there's no two minds that are the same, and there's no two lives that are really the same. Why do you think you have this such a stronger curiosity for people than most people have? Where it comes from, I don't know. I need a psychiatrist to figure that out. When I, I don't know where it comes from. I don't know when or how I became motivated to think this way. That's too deep a question for me to figure out in one hour interview. For this, for this, you should you should have to hire me by the hour <laughs> for at least a, a month and a half. It, it's and pay me a very fancy dollar because that'll be hard work for me to figure it out. I only answer easier questions for these prices. Okay. For these prices, you're not going to make me into such a deep thinker because then it becomes hard work. <laughs> well, but, but whatever I could answer without thinking is the only answers you're going to get. If once I have to start working on it, I want to know what I'm getting for it. Jackie, you're the first well-known comedian that I ever got to spend time and hang out with. And I got very used to, you know, people walk in, we'll be in, in a, a restaurant or a cafe. Excuse me, if you don't mind me doing an impression of you. Uh, excuse me, mister, let me ask you a question. Uh, what do you do? Where are you coming from? Oh, yeah? What's that like? <laughs> and, and, then, and then I started hanging out with other well-known comedians. I assumed that this is just the way comedians operate. And they didn't do it. And I'd be sitting with the, another well-known comic. They would just want to be left to themselves. And they wouldn't interact with people. And I... I was thinking, okay, it's just Jackie then. It's you just found that they're not interested in people. They weren't interested in people, but they I they weren't curious. When people said hello to them, they didn't feel like talking to them. I, I if think the people try to make a conversation or ask a few questions, they would avoid it. I think you're the exception to the rule, and I've spent time with a lot of well-known comedians now, and I haven't seen it from anybody else. I don't. They, I think they generally try to avoid people. Yeah. So that's always fascinated me about you is that you're you're the complete opposite of that. Well, I think that's my that's why my comedy sounds so different than theirs. Yeah. My comedy is a comedy about life, about human behavior. Their comedy is about exaggerated nonsense. Uh, there's much more reflection of, of of the character of people and what the, what people represent, what their behavior represents, what their attitudes are all about, what their emotional content is, what their experience is what their feelings about themselves, their lives, their family, their, their attitude, their work, their relationship with other people, everything about 
all the different uh, attitudes and qualities that a person's life represents involves my type of comedy. That's my type of comedy. I'm trying to interpret what are the quirks and the queer and the qualities and the and the characteristics of people in general, and what differentiates one person from another, and what, how do people think and how do people behave and why. It's a whole range of of qualities and characteristics that I try to study from every direction of a human being. And I guess that's why you always have all these eclectic characters around you also, because you're, you're studying all these different personalities. Right. And another thing I've never seen you do is write anything down. I've never seen you, uh, I've seen, I've never seen you take out a notepad and write down an idea. So I very rarely do that. I very rarely do that, but on the other hand, I don't think it's such a brilliant idea because you can't remember every thought you have. And sometimes it's really better if you did just to remind yourself of a certain thought you had that you don't want to forget. So I, some, some interesting ideas very often pass me by because of it. But I'm busy enough with enough thoughts that, uh, that it, I, I think it's good enough the way it is. Yeah, I got the... A pencil and paper is hard work already. <laughs> Once you have to start looking for a piece of paper, and then you write it down, and then you put it in your pocket, and then you have to remember where you put it, and then you have to arrange it and think about it. That's too much work just to remember something. Well, I'm, a, I'm very grateful to you for many things. You, you gave me a job, and I, I sold merchandise at your Broadway show at Freshly Squeezed, and I used to get to see you perform all the time. The material was so tight and so polished. There was no rambling. There was It seemed like it was very very to the word written but i'd never seen you write anything down as i mentioned so i, I always because wondered by the time i told the joke on the stage i keep refining it to make sure that there's no holes in it so i i can't accept myself being unfunny for for more than than 10 seconds i have to my comedy is built on having one joke after another as much as possible so that there's a rolling chorus of comedy flowing and flying all, all, all night. And see if, as soon as I see holes in the next line, I either shorten it, change it, get away from it, and make sure that it keeps bouncing. So that people, can, I, by the time they come out, they, I want everybody to be able to say, wow, wow, I couldn't stop laughing. If they could stop laughing even for, for a minute, to me it's too much. Was there ever any time that you stopped? I always feel like working. If I get a job, I'm working. And if I'm not, it doesn't bother me. Lately, I'm working a lot less than I used to because I said to myself, it's not that important to me to work now as much as it once was. Mm-hmm. But uh, I still love being on the stage as much as I ever did. But I don't care if I'm busy or not because walking around is also a pleasure to me, bumping into people on the street. Right. Like you said before, I'm curious about people, so I bump into people all the time. And I find life in general is interesting. There's enough about life to be interesting that you don't have to be performing to enjoy life. And you don't have to be working for a living to enjoy life. What are your favorite things about life outside of comedy? Uh, other, other than people, observing That's people. That's about it. That's <laughs> my favorite thing about life is just, just talking to people. And, yeah. and walking around a lot. And I like to read a lot so that you can't learn everything from talking to people. There's a... There's a lot going on all over the world that you're not going to hear from people. Right. Like right now, there's a, a plane crashed and, and 150 people got killed. I'm not going to bump into people that are going to talk about it, but it, 
but I'd like to know what happened about it. How did it happen? What caused it? What are the ramifications because of it? What are the problems and how, which way it affects America, affects, affects people in New York? Who knows, if you don't read about the world, who knows what's going to happen in this country within the next year? You have to know if you should get out or stay here. You'll never even find that out if you don't, if you don't get information from other sources. Because there's a great possibility that this whole country could bind down. Because this ISIS, the way they're flying through all of the Middle East, and they've already created some vicious, violent incidents in America. And now a, a plane from Germany, every passenger was killed. If it could happen to Germany, it could happen to America. And it already was a number of incidents. Who knows how many more could happen, and who knows if we'll be in trouble like, the, like in Israel, where bombs are falling every minute. It could happen here, too. It was inconceivable to people that there could be a 9-11 incident. And now that 10 years passed, they forgot that it happened and they think it's inconceivable that it could happen again. People forget that it could happen again by Thursday. It could happen here while we're sitting here. Mm -hmm. Who knows if the next guy coming in here hasn't got a blade and ready to chop my head off. You can't predict it. It happened, it happened to somebody in Houston, Texas. You got a big guy with you. That's the point of having me around. Right. Yeah. yeah. Somebody shows up with a knife, I'll, I'll step up. I'll, have to, I'll just have a bigger knife. That doesn't yeah. mean it can't wake up. <laughs> Where would you go if, if you had to leave America? Did you ever think about that? If I had to leave America, I would say I'd go to Canada. I'd go to Toronto. I, I'd enjoy Toronto a lot. I also enjoy London, mm -hmm. but not as much as Toronto. Because in London, strangers don't talk to each other. The uh, protocol determines that you don't talk to strangers. If right. you say hello to a stranger, they look at you like the, like you belong in a sanitarium. <laughs> you talk to a stranger, as soon as you say hello, they want to call a cop. Yeah. They figure there's something wrong with this guy, and he might go crazy altogether. People get panicky when you talk to them. Right. If you walk down the street and you say, which way is Tite Street? They look at you like... You're already crazy. <laughs> what are you asking me? If you, why do you, you don't know where Tite Street is, find out for yourself. What are you bothering me? Why do you think most people have that attitude? Because they're raised to think that this, their, 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 uh, their conception of, of, of dignity and class is, is never to, to talk to a stranger and never interrupt anybody and never ask a personal question and never in any way may try to make any contact with a strange human being. That's why when English people come here, they all tell me the same thing. The people are so friendly here, they can't get over how friendly New Yorkers are. Now we have the idea that New Yorkers are very unfriendly. You have to go out of town to meet friendly people. <laughs> yeah. But to a Londoner, New Yorkers are friendly because New Yorkers could be sitting at a table next to each other and they might start a conversation. Mm -hmm. In London, they never do. You could go, to, you could go on a, to take the same bus every day and stand next to the same person every day on the same bus and they'll never say hello for 30 years. <laughs> for many years you and I talked, but I think mostly about comedy. But uh, I realize I don't know too much because, about... Because you're not too intelligent a person. Right. And I figured there's nothing else that you would understand. <laughs> so I didn't make an effort to talk to you about other things.
Well, I appreciate you keeping uh, it simple for if me. I, if I see, <laughs> if I see a, an intelligent person, I try on other subjects. Mm-hmm. But with you, I probably was afraid to take a chance because from talking to you, I begin to sense that this is the only thing you'll figure out. You knew your audience, in other words. Right. <laughs> but I want to ask you a little bit about your life growing up. I never got a chance to talk to you about the early years, Jackie Mason, the early years. Yeah, at this stage in life, it's a long time to remember. I don't know if I have that good a memory. What You know how, how long a memory I'd have to have to remember my early years? Yeah. I have to go through at least a year and a half of time. <laughs> Maybe two years. What, what kind Maybe of... Maybe eight. What, what <laughs> was your family like? Uh, I know you have siblings, right? Right. How many? Seven children. Three sisters and three brothers. And where do you place in that? I place in the middle. I'm the fourth, the fourth son. Wow. Okay. After that, there was three daughters. And I know, I know as much as that your father was a rabbi. Right. Uh, that would make your mother a rabbitson. Right. Okay. <laughs> um, and where, where did you grow up? Did you know that I was also a rabbi? Or you never knew I that? I knew that, yeah. Right. So how come you're simply avoiding it? I just haven't gotten to it yet. I'm oh, starting, yeah. I'm starting I earlier. See. I see. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I forgot it's your show. You have a right to do whatever way, however you want. <laughs> for for the money yeah. I'm paying you? Right. <laughs> for your money you're paying me, I should be telling you what to do. Yeah. Welcome Who to takes th- orders for these prices? Well, nobody takes orders for these prices except me. Right. So 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 tell me about growing up and uh, how it, was it a very very orthodox home? Very strictly orthodox. It was so orthodox that you. You couldn't even say hello without praying. You're praying day and night. You pray before you eat, you pray after you eat. You, get, if you, you pray before you go for a walk, you pray before you see a chair. Mm-hmm. Before you get up from a chair, you sit down on the chair. There's so many prayers day and night. And you get up in the morning, there's morning prayers, there's afternoon prayers, there's nighttime prayers. I'm not even exaggerating. Right. There's a, you say prayers about 63 times a day. I also grew up Orthodox. You knew, yeah. you knew that, right? I, Right. I grew up Orthodox, but uh, probably what I, what I grew up would be now considered modern Orthodox. Uh-huh. And uh, do you know that? So have how you heard come that you don't term? look so modern to me? I look old timey, huh? You look like you're confused about what time it is. Was it a black hat kind of? Uh, were your family? My black? father was a black hat type of family, mm-hmm. but the children we always just dressed in in normal uh, street corner times like anybody else. Mm-hmm. Where was this in Brooklyn? I was born in Sheboygan, Wisconsin. <laughs> he thinks it's a joke. It's not a joke. That's oh, really? where I was actually born. Oh, really? In Sheboygan, Wisconsin. <laughs> if you look it up on Google, you'll find out I was born in Sheboygan, Wisconsin because my father was a rabbi in New York, but when he came to New York from Russia, there were 90 million rabbis all over the Lower East Side. This was the time of the heavy immigration from the European countries, from Russia and Poland, into America. So the Lower East Side is where they came, and it was a huge hubbub of thousands of Orthodox Jews there, and dozens and dozens of rabbis. So none of them were working. It was hard to make a living. So there was an organization that got rabbis jobs out of town in different cities so that a a rabbi could get into a Midwestern community where there might be a hundred Jews and they needed a rabbi. So with just a hundred Jewish families, he became the local rabbi and he was able to make a living. And when my father became a rabbi, he was shipped to, uh, to, to Sheboygan, Wisconsin. The organization got him a job there because he was starving in New York. 
And how long did you live there for? So we lived there some, I don't know exactly, something like maybe five, seven years, I'm not sure. But uh, I, that's where I was born. And then when my father realized that the children would have no, no rabbinical schools because he wanted them to become rabbis, he knew he had to come back to New York to find a way to have them study to become rabbis. But after he made a few dollars there, I don't know how he managed to come back to New York and he started to make a living as a rabbi. He made such a meager living that I remember that every that people used to come to my house and they kept giving him donations because he obviously couldn't make a, couldn't make a living because of the competition among the rabbis. But it was more important to him that we should have a place to study to become a rabbi. Mm -hmm. So I remember as a child seeing people come and leave a dollar, leave a half a dollar, leave a quarter, leave a few dollars before they left. They would come, he would talk to them, give them a blessing or, or talk about the rabbinical laws or, or something about, about the Talmud, about a prayer, about something that they wanted to know about religion. And they would always give him a few dollars for the information or for the, or out of the tradition or just to help out. And that's how we made money. I remember we had nothing to eat. And if we ate, it was always yesterday's or, or last month's. It was last month's week, it was last month's soup. It was to, uh, a stale apple, uh, uh, a stale tomato, something that was falling apart or something was sour or it was done already, or it was overdone, or nothing was fresh. Everything was either overdone or, or, or used up or, or left over. It was always it was something messy that I was eating. Where was this? Was this, where in New York this was This was on the Lower East Side. Okay, wow. Yeah, so this, this is when the Lower East Side, I've only heard of it in, in legend for me, but you know, that it was the most bustling Jewish area ever there was delis on every corner and is that i mean can you paint a, a picture of it for me it was a it was a, just a jewish neighborhood like an old world jewish neighborhood just like you might have in the in in the hasidic neighborhood of williamsburg or borough park was just a jewish type of stores a jewish um, a jewish grocery store everybody everything was jewish and all the stores were jewish and everything about the neighborhood was jewish what? It was like you go to Mulberry Street and you see an Italian neighborhood. Was it in the, in that time? Was it still like milkmen were coming around and ice men and all? Right. Yeah. There was the ice men. It was before refrigerators, right? How do you know about the ice men? I read a little bit. Huh? That's news to me. From talking to you, I couldn't tell. <laughs> <laughs> but that's right. So, so you, so did your family usually get ice, or did you have, because you didn't have refrigeration? Did yeah, you? we had to buy. I remember you bought a, you bought a big hunk of ice, for for twenty cents, or I don't remember, or maybe ten cents. The ice man came around selling ice. Isn't it amazing? He's, he reminded me of things I forgot about a long time ago. I had to search my memory to remember it because it's so many years ago that I saw that. Like what? what? What kind of things do you remember? Like, uh, I remember there was a, a guy who sold sweet potatoes. He walked around with a, with a certain <laughs> kind of a pushmobile, and he sold sweet potatoes. And then there was a guy who sold hot corn. We used to call it hot corn. Today they say it's a piece of corn. In those days they call yeah. it hot corn. And then there was a guy who sold 
who sold uh, I remember what else fruit maybe but you still see today you see guys with with carts uh, selling fruit on the corners right I think it's going and back you see today <laughs> with carts the guy selling hot dogs yeah it's not that much different but it sounds so Except much more exciting that at that time that time that's the only way you bought anything there were very few stores because I, th- I don't think people were able to afford to build a store Everything was from a pushcart or a or a pushmobile. They used to call it a pushmobile. And did you play in the street with the other kids? I played very little. I was never a, I never played anything. I was never much of an athlete. I always imagine like kids playing stickball in the streets and stuff. I never did that. No. Everybody else played stickball and I never got involved in athletics un- until the Italian kids started to threaten me in the streets. Because in those days, Italian kids were all anti-Semitic. Today, Italians and Jews are lovers. And they all marry each other and they're all crazy about each other. It's almost like a family thing between mm-hmm. Italians and Jews. But in those days, Christians in general were all anti-Semitic. Everybody hated a Jew. And the Italian kids in the neighborhood were always raised to hate Jews. So they were always, if they found out you were Jewish, they would chase you in the streets or try to punch you in the mouth. Wow. And uh, I, I found myself afraid to walk in the street. So uh, I remember when I, there was a, a, a neighborhood settlement house. That was like a Y, you would call it today, where all the activities of the neighborhood would, would be taking place in that one building. People went there, that's where they had a gym, that's where they had uh, games, that's where they had activities, that's where they had dances, that's where they had library, that's where they had every kind of activity. Was in that uh, was in that way, and one of the things they did in that way is uh, they had a gym, and one of the things they did is teach boxing. They taught basketball, baseball, whatever thing, and there was also boxing classes. Then there was the police department had boxing classes. They used to call it the police athletic league, and the police athletic league had tournaments, boxing tournaments. So in order to be able to defend myself, I started to take this up is, boxing. It all makes sense to me because. I don't know if you remember, but you used to call me up and, and uh, ask me to go on the internet and tell you who won the fight. Uh, right. So now I understand where it comes from. This all started right. when you were a kid. Right. So, so you took boxing lessons there? Right. And after that, I wasn't afraid anymore. After that, if any kid started to pick on me, I said, what do you want to do? And I was amazed. Nine out of ten times, they got scared and ran like a thief. Did you ever hit And anybody? if they fought and if they wanted to fight, yeah. I would fight them. Yeah. And I was great at it. <laughs> I, I threw punches so fast the guy didn't know what was happening that's awesome <laughs> and I remember my Italian kids seeing me and walking across the street to avoid me I used to avoid them they, they started to avoid me wow now at this <laughs> they point started you started to run away from me I imagine that you were still very religious at this point as a kid right, and right. were you wearing uh, tzitzit uh, the, the, right. the strings and the yarmulke right. so you're a tough kid in tzitzit I became less and less religious as I grew older and older. But I, uh, I still maintained my, uh, my relationship with my family and I still acted like I was a religious person because I didn't want them to be disappointed in me. I didn't, want to be, I didn't want to disappoint my father because my father's whole life was involved with, with the dream that I'll be a rabbi because my three brothers were rabbis before me. And he wanted everybody to be a rabbi. He wanted my sisters to be a rabbi. 
he wanted to, if a dog walked by, he should be a rabbi. If a cat, <laughs> everybody should be a rabbi. My father only knew one thing, you got to learn to be a rabbi. Uh-huh. Were you Men, very- women, children, doorknobs, anybody. Were you very close because with him? he was very, very strictly religious, and he believed that the devotion to godliness was the only thing to live for. And the more you learn of the Talmud, and the more you learn about our religion, and the more you study the philosophy of godliness and, and all the uh, scholarship involved in all the study of, of the Talmud and the interpretations of the Talmud and books about the Talmud. And he became a great writer about Talmudical studies, Talmudical interpretations. He became a well-known scholar, my father. Were you close with him? I was very, very close with him because I, I always did anything in the world to please him, to make him happy because I didn't want him to be disappointed in me. I wanted him to enjoy life, and I, it would have hurt him too much if he thought I wasn't religious. Would you say he was a happy guy? Would, yeah, or he was, just he was a happy guy because he had his life in the way he wanted it. Even though he was poor and he was always poor in the books? It meant nothing to him. If he yeah. had enough money to eat, enough to survive, that's all they wanted. So That's all my father wanted. He had no ideas or interests in any material things. He wasn't hoping to have a bigger mattress, a higher ceiling. He wasn't looking for a rug on the floor. He wasn't looking for a softer chair. As long as you could sit down and get up and, and start <laughs> learning again and, and studying again, that's all he looked for. What was, what was your parents' marriage like? Did they get along very well? They got along very well. My father was the boss and my mother knew it. And my mother was comfortable with it. My mother didn't try to to compete with him, it was a perfect arrangement. Who were you? Who were he, you? Wasn't th- he wasn't bossy, he wasn't, he wasn't obnoxious, he wasn't authoritative about it. It was just traditional among the Orthodox Jews that they catered to the man. Who, who were you closer with of your two parents? I was just as close with both of them. It's interesting, like a lot of comedians that I, that I talk to have a lousy relationship with their parents. And I, think I think one of the reasons people become comedians is because they have a miserable existence. I get that impression. I get that impression that that there's a, a desperate need to be on the stage. I don't remember a desperate need to be on the stage like I see in most performers. Never. I enjoy the stage, and I'm an egomaniac about it too. And I uh, I get a big pleasure out of attention, and I and I need attention, and I enjoy attention. But I don't remember ever lacking attention. <laughs> I don't remember ever having a problem with attention because in my family I always had plenty of attention. And I'm as much of an egomaniac as for attention as anybody else who's in show business. But I don't remember suffering from the lack of it because I always felt I could get enough attention. Whether I, I became a comedian by accident. I was actually delivering sermons and using comedy in my sermons as a rabbi. And the people in the congregation kept saying to me, Rabbi, why aren't you a comedian? You should have been a comedian. Then I said to myself, it makes a lot more money. Why don't I try it? <laughs> I wasn't motivated because I really wanted to be a comedian. I just started to figure it out. And I said to myself, let's see, as a rabbi, I'm making $100 a month. Mm-hmm. As a comedian, even if, if I'm not so hot, I'll probably make millions or thousands at least. Right. There's a lot of money to be made there because I'm watching comedians I see. They make a fortune. And I watch a rabbi. He's always trying to figure out if he has enough money for his rent. So what, or even to buy a piece of cake. So I started, so I said to myself, let me try this. What was the first time you ever went on stage? I knew that all the Jews went to the mountains in those days. The word mountains to the Jews in New York 
was not a mountain someplace where there's a real mountain. The mm -hmm. mountain was the Catskills. Right. And nobody ever saw a mountain in the Catskills. They probably have mountains there, but it's called the mountains, but nobody ever saw a mountain there. Nobody even saw a hill or a valley. All they saw <laughs> sloping streets and broken down corners. But everybody said to themselves, it's cold there. It was hot like hell in New York mm -hmm. during the summer because it was before air conditioning. And the only air conditioning you had was going onto the fire escape. Mm -hmm. The fire escape was the air conditioning. Because at night it was bearable. But in the daytime it was unbearable and everybody was hoping to get away from the heat and they didn't know how. So, they, so it became popular to go to the mountains. The mountains were 80, 90 miles from New York. Mm -hmm. And everybody took a bus to the mountains because almost nobody had a car. And when you went to the mountains, all of a sudden, it was cool and comfortable. So they started to build hotels in the mountains. So before you know it, the Catskills started to develop one hotel after another. There was all of a sudden, there was three, 400 hotels. And there was hotels for the, for the better off where they would get a fancy dining room and a fancy place. And then there were hotels for the poverty-stricken people. Mm -hmm. And they used to call them bungalow colonies. Bungalow colonies had almost nothing in it. It was just a, a mattress and a room. Mm -hmm. And whole families could go to these bungalow colonies. And these bungalow colonies usually had a social hall where they would put on shows for the people. So they started to hire comedians and singers. And before you know it, every weekend in the Catskills, there was shows someplace. Almost every hotel had a show at least once a week. Every bungalow colony had a show at least once or twice a week. And they would get $50 or $12, whatever you could get. And so everybody became an entertainer because they found out you could go there and make a living. Right. And, uh, and the, the best hotels like the Concord and Grossinger's, they had shows every night, and before you know it, they had stars on weekends. Every one of the stars that are over 65, 70 today, every one of them played in the Catskills when they started out. Mm -hmm. Jerry Lewis used to play the uh, everybody. Whoever you could think of, Alan King, Buddy Hackett, uh, Danny Kay. I remember seeing Danny Kay in the Catskills. Uh, everybody. Uh, George Carlin always talked about Danny Kay, that he was his favorite. Is that right? Yeah. Did you, did I you thought, like... I, thought, I agree with him. I think Danny Kay was a, a genius. Unbelievable talent. He could sing, he could dance. He, he was a great natural personality. He, he was a brilliantly colorful character in movies. He made those huge hit movies, one after the other, that were biggest national hits. Remember those movies? I don't. They're before my you time. You ever heard of those names of those movies? Uh... I forgot the names, but there was one huge hit picture after another. They were huge national hits. And so, for your first well, for your so first gig, you went to the Catskills. Louis Dick was in the Catskills, but they wouldn't accept me as a comedian right away. So I said to myself, once I'm in the Catskills and I, once I'm there, I'll find a way to get on the stage and become a comedian. So I. Uh, I found it easier to get a job as a waiter or a busboy. So I walked in and I said that I've been a waiter in different hotels, in different places, and I lied my way into the job, and they gave me a job as a waiter. And as soon as I started to pick up the dishes, everything started falling down. <laughs> I couldn't seem to hold on to a dish. And every time, <laughs> one dish I could carry, but once it was more than three dishes, 
They have, the waiters know how to carry eight dishes in four different hands, and they know how to put pile them one on top of another, and they right. know how to distribute them and handle them, and I found that impossible to handle. Anything practical is not for me. To this day, I still can't figure out how to pay a taxi. She still has to help me. <laughs> I have a girlfriend who, who, who keeps helping me out to, every time I want to pay a taxi <laughs> because the complications become too involved for me. So if you can't even pay a taxi, you can imagine what a trouble I would have had mm-hmm. trying to be a waiter. Right. That's why I have great compassion for waiters when I saw that dishes could fly out of control in a second and a half and going back and forth to a kitchen. To me, I took boxing lessons and I became a boxer and I found that a lot easier than running back and forth into a kitchen. <laughs> as soon as it went, more salt, bang into the kitchen. Less salt, more, t- more ketchup, <laughs> more boop, bang into the kitchen. People, especially if they're Jewish, are never happy with whatever they got. Yeah. Whatever they got, it always could be better. <laughs> Nothing comes out right to a Jew. As long as you take it out, Maybe you could put a little more of this. They're always trying to squeeze out an extra thing out of every dish. <laughs> if, it so, com- yeah. if it comes with, with potatoes, maybe we could have a piece of tomato. <laughs> if it comes with a tom- tomato and potatoes, then maybe we could have a, <laughs> with a, a cauliflower. They'll think of another thing. And if it's got nothing on the plate at all, maybe I could have a small piece of steak. I, I don't want to ask for a big piece. <laughs> I think, it's a, I think it's a complex that Jews have that we're always being hard done by, right? It's but Jew, Jews always feel they have to find a way to do better. And if you, you can't do better directly, you could find some indirect way to do it, some crooked way, some manipulative way. They won't directly steal anything <laughs> because they have too much morality to be thieves. But if, you, if it's within the law, they'll be, they'll be trying to find ways... To get everything you got without paying for it. Right. That's the whole Talmud, right? That's the the Talmud the is finding loopholes. Is how much you could yeah. get away with without getting caught, right? Or without going to jail, <laughs> yeah. and without feeling like a crook. What if a if a, if a gentleman wants to rob a hotel, he just goes in and robs it. Yeah. But you checks into the hotel, and by the time he leaves, there's nothing left. <laughs> there's nothing left. <laughs> no matter what's in the room, he figures who they, they're not gonna miss it. Right. <laughs> If they take a, take an extra towel, what they, they always manipulate ways to feel comfortable with, it, to rationalize an excuse, to justify it, not to feel like a crook. So when they take a towel, they say, "What do you think they're gonna miss it?" Besides, how much does a towel cost them? If you buy a towel, it costs you a dollar and a quarter. They buy them by the thousands. So what mm-hmm. does it cost them? Maybe seven cents. Yeah. Uh, then if they see a chair. Well, do you think they? There's five chairs here. If, if there was only four chairs, you think they would miss it? So you could take a chair. One chair, they're not going to miss it. How about the rug? They don't need a rug. A right. rug it creates dirt. Yeah. It's better without a rug. So they take the rug home with them. Before you know it, they take everything. The place is empty. <laughs> if a chair, if a Jew just left the room, you could always tell because when you come in, there's nothing there. Yeah. They're lucky you can't take the walls home because that's the only thing that's left. <laughs> I want to write this down. That was a good routine. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. So you were working as a waiter. It didn't work out as a waiter. What did you do next? So when it didn't work out as a waiter, they had amateur nights in the hotels. Well, the first thing I did, uh, I'm wrong. The first thing I did was become a lifeguard. <laughs> when the, when uh, when I found out that a waiter's job was a murderous thing, I found out in that hotel that they had swimming but they didn't have a lifeguard and they needed a lifeguard because it was illegal to have a a pool without a lifeguard Mm -hmm. 
So when I found that out, I applied for the job as a lifeguard. So that when the guy asked me if I could swim, I, I didn't have the nerve to lie to him because God forbid somebody could <laughs> drown. So I said, well, I could swim not a lot. <laughs> I can't swim great. I don't know if I could save anybody, but I certainly could swim a little. So the, the guy liked me because I was very funny to him and, on the, and I was funny on the grounds and I was carrying on with people and he was happy to give me some kind of a job so he made me the lifeguard. Uh-huh. And then I got scared with, 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 that God forbid somebody could drown. So I hung up a sign that swimming is at your own risk. Remember if you're swimming, you could be endangering your life. If you, if you can't swim, please don't, something like that was on the mm-hmm. sign. If you can't swim, please don't try it because you'll be endangering your life. You'll also be endangering the life of the lifeguard. <laughs> uh, and that became a big joke in the place. And then they had amateur nights. Every night they had different activities in the small hotels because they couldn't afford to hire a complete show every night. Mm-hmm. So they had one show a week and the rest of the week they had activity nights. They invented activities. One night was game night. One night was amateur night. And where everybody in the, in the hotel could sign up to perform. Like they have uh, in, the, in, in some small bars and lounges, they have what they call... Uh, what do they call those nights in the bars and the lounges? Open, open mic night? Open mic night. I, well, I there's just, another name for it. There's open uh, mic night. There's another new, name. New talent night. Uh, when when they have people come up, uh, they call it, uh, I forgot what they call it. Anyway, it was like an amateur night. So I came on, went on the stage on one of those amateur nights, and I was a sensation. I tore the house down. So the guy made me the social director. Uh-huh. The social director is the guy who runs around bothering people to to do activities of different kinds. He creates activities all day and all night to keep people busy, to, to create different forms of entertainment. He starts a baseball game, a football game, a card game, different kinds of activities. And this is all over one summer you did all these different right. things? So wow. then I became, then I, I started to perform there on the amateur nights, and they loved me, I was a sensation. And then the weight got out that there's a comedian here that's hilarious. So they used to come in from the other hotels nearby to watch me. And then an agent told about it. By the time I was there the third week, the agent started booking me into other hotels. And by the time the season was over, I was already playing Grossingers at the Concord, which are the two biggest hotels yeah. in the Catskills. I, now this term comes to mind. I don't, I've, I've read a little bit about the Catskills, but I don't remember what this is. But when you're talking about the pool, I thought of something I heard something called a tumbler. A tumbler? Yeah. What is, they used to call him a social director. It was called a tumbler sometimes. What? A tumbler means a, a guy who's a, a, a noisemaker, a, a guy creating activity, entertainment, hustling and bustling people to, to find ways to create a, a party, a, a party creator. And that was by the pool? Or that was in the hotel in, in the general. Hotel. They call him a tumbler because he would always try to see if he could liven up a crowd with stories, with entertainment, with, with uh, carrying on with people, hustling and bustling, making sure that there's always some noise going on or some kind of activity or some kind of, some kind of way to keep the place jumping. Yeah. He created... So, so that's what you did. A tumbler was like a guy who was creating a jumping activity. Were you doing that or no? Right. Yeah. Well, oh. that's, that's a social director, basically. Okay. 
All right. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna shift gears completely and go into the philosophy now because I, I've uh, I've taken a lot of time talking to you because I can't get enough of you. That's well, the truth of it. That's good. You can go into the philosophy now. So the philosopher that Alex picked out for you is uh, Martin Luther, who I know a little bit about because he started Protestantism. Right. And he was an anti-Semite. I know that. Right. He was born in Germany. He lived from November 10th, 1483, till February 18th, 1546. He was a German friar, a priest, a professor of theology, who was a seminal figure in the Protestant Reformation. He was initially an Augustinian friar. Luther came to reject several teachings and practices of the Roman Catholic Church. He strongly disputed the claim that freedom from God's punishment for sin could be purchased with money. He confronted the indulgent salesman, Jonathan Tezel, a Dominion friar, with his 95 thesis in 1517. His refusal to retract all of his writings at the demand of Pope Leo at the Diet of Worms in 1521 resulted in his excommunication by the Pope and condemnation as an outlaw by the Emperor. The Catholic Church adopted the idea that goodness in your heart is not enough and they started asking people to perform charity. It was corrupted into lay people giving the church money to save their souls, and Luther believed strongly in the doctrine of justification, meaning that God could forgive a sinner based on faith alone. By surrendering to faith, we acknowledge that God can forgive, making redemption an internal process. He further argued that human righteousness comes from God's righteousness put on us. Therefore, faith and prayer are the only way to properly make decisions and human judgment and rules are flawed, but surrender to God is default perfect. And that's why he specifically left the church. And I guess it was a lot to do with money corruption. But I don't, th I don't know that Protestant Protestantism is, a is that much better, or Lutheranism, they all take money. Isn't that part of it? What was he trying to say, that, that, uh, that money corrupts? He was saying that the church was corrupted by money, and that the church was telling people at the time that the only way you're gonna, your soul is going to be absolved is if you give X amount of dollars to the church. And just by being righteous alone is not enough. God's not going to... First the of all... Is, the question is, why do you give money to a church? What is the church going to do with the money? I could, I could understand if a person said that your life is, is meaningless if you, don't, if you don't have time to be concerned about the poor or the underprivileged and you don't take time... To, to help and to give and to do for people who are who are who are less lucky than you, right? Who are who have so much less than you, who need help so much more than you that you don't go out of your way to do something for them. A person who doesn't care enough to help the the underprivileged, I could see where that's a problem. But to give money to a church, I would like to know why should you give money to a church and why does a church need money? If if the church represents the needy. Mm -hmm. then, then, then it's not a question of the church, it's a question of the needy. If that's what the church represents, you, I you shouldn't be happy with yourself unless you give to the church. I, uh -huh. But if the church just exists on its own terms as an institution, instead of a charity organization, instead of an, a humanitarian purpose... It must have been a greed thing. Either, there's, either it serves a humanitarian purpose or not. Whether you call it a church or a school, or a temple, or, or you call it anything, is irrelevant to me. Do you the only see thing religion? that matters is what is the purpose of the church. And if the church represents giving to the needy, 
then I see that it's terrible, and it, and you have a, and you're living a worthless life if you don't give money to it. But if the church represents just an organization or an institution, mm -hmm. and you don't know what it's doing or what it's for, then you got to be nuts to give money to the church. It's also, I Tell guess, because they it's were about before I give, ask me for money. There. And, be, and the, nobody should ask me for money without telling me what the purpose is. And they're also saying... But in the a, great churches of the world always helped the needy and the poor. But and I think they were being I, manipulative about it. They were saying God's not going to let you into his club unless you give the money. And, well, I guess a lot of times they'll use God as, a, as just sort of a way to manipulate to me, to people. To me, the white God means, means holiness. And the holy life is what God represents. And the holy life without caring is no life at all. And if the church represents giving and caring and sharing and love for, the, for those who need it most, for the underprivileged and the suffering souls of the world, you should dedicate yourself, at least part of your life, to help those who need more, who need more than you, what, what, you could, what they could do for themselves. If they can do it for themselves, you should help and do it for them. Do and you, if you can't do it, then you're living a worthless life. Were, were there times when you worked as a rabbi that you actually felt you did some good work as a rabbi that you enjoyed? I would say that as a rabbi, I, I always try to impart some kind of a useful thought, some kind of, a, of an idea that I thought would, would help make them a better person, that they could learn from it about some side of life and some interpretation about life that that would, uh, would teach some kind of a moral lesson or a spiritual lesson or, or some kind of a thought that would make them in some way a better person. Did you take any of that with you when you started doing comedy? No, not, not that I know of, but everything you experience, you, you do in your comedy. Your comedy is an accumulation of everything you've learned and experienced. Mm -hmm. everything, you, everything that you've gone through in life becomes part of your comedy. Well, Martin Luther, the connection is that you left being a rabbi to pursue comedy. Martin Luther left the Catholic Church to start his own faith. Well, I can't pretend that the motivation of my comedy is to educate people. I can't pretend that I'm trying to teach them anything. But I'm not uh, pretending that I aim to, to teach. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not aiming to elevate people's thoughts and ideas. And, and, and uh, I'm not trying to see if I can make a better man out of you. I'm just trying to, to, to entertain you. So that's the big so distinction. To see, right. When I look at comedy now, I think of you as, as one of the founders of what stand-up comedy is today. I never thought of whether I'm original or not. I just thought that what I see is funny and I think is going to make a person laugh is what I tell them. I think of what I think could make them laugh. I don't try to think of what significance it might have. This? I don't care if it has no significance. And if it turns out to have some significance, I'm happy to hear about it. But I'm, I don't think, I don't think of, of the job of a comedian as a job of a, of a person who's supposed to impart some knowledge or some, or some intelligence, or is supposed to be some way a revelation mm -hmm. about something you never thought of before. I think it's just a question of what's going to make you laugh. That's all I think of. And I think everything that's realistic about life if you can identify it, it's going to make you live. If, it's, if you talk about the shortcomings of people, the hypocrisy in people, the, uh, the, uh, the, the status symbols that people chase, 
and uh, the, uh, the way they misinterpret what they do to give it a better reason to justify their behavior. So, they, so you come across all kinds of ridiculous lies that people tell themselves and tell each other to justify who they are and what they represent. Mm -hmm. Because everybody is trying to see themselves as a wonderful person and nobody wants to know about the complexes they have. <laughs> so, when you, so when you identify their complexes, it makes them laugh right away because it's uh -oh. not personal. If you accuse the, a Jew of buying a Mercedes because it makes him, because he identifies with it as a status symbol and he has to show off a Mercedes, he'll tell you to drop dead. <laughs> I don't buy it as a status symbol, I right. buy it for the engineering. Right. <laughs> so when I tell it to them on the stage, and I don't attack him personally. He's free to laugh at it, and he's laughing at himself because he's free to laugh. Yeah. If I said it to him personally, he would be hurt. Right. But if I say it this way, he's, he finds it hilarious. He forgets that it's him that I'm, that I'm involved with. He forgets that I'm attacking him because, he's, because it's a general truth. And before well, you know it, he's laughing at himself without realizing how, what a hypocrite he is and, what a, <laughs> and how preposterous is. His attitude. That's the side jab in boxing, right? right? Where they don't see it coming. What he really is is a ridiculous idiot. Because there's no reason to buy a Mercedes if you think of it as as a car. There's no car in the world that's worth three hundred thousand dollars. Right. They buy a a Lamborghini. Yeah. A Lamborghini. There's a Lamborghini. And there's another one that Raul Felder, a friend of mine, has. But the point is. That there's no reason for that car because nobody could claim if you blindfolded them that you're more comfortable in a $300,000 car than a $40,000 car. Maybe it's maybe it's more comfortable than a $12,000 car, yeah. but for, for $70,000 you could certainly buy the, the best car you could think of. <laughs> but why is there a car for $400,000? Right. <laughs> you do comedy like a boxer. Right. You know the way you do comedy. You were saying you don't leave a without a laugh for for too long. It really is like jab, 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 jab. Right. Thank you very much for doing the show. And uh, I also want to tell you that I love you so much. I really do, and you mean the world to me. Oh, thank you. That's very sweet of you to say, because you're very. The truth is that you're a very fine person, even though it's hard to tell from talking to you. <laughs> Thanks, Jackie. everybody that's our show that's our show thank you for listening thank you again to jackie mason thank you to those who are writing in write into the comical at yahoo.com say hello keep a correspondence going i love hearing from you if you want the first season of the show it's five bucks a month you can cancel any time it's uh at connectpal.com slash modern day philosophers and it's linked on the website moderndayphilosophers.net you can make a donation there the donations keep the shows a coming and uh it's gonna be a great season everybody i'm excited to have you with me it's gonna be a good ride a lot of good ones next week there'll be a lot more philosophy on the show and then some weeks there'll be more comedy and some weeks it'll be more interviews and hopefully you'll enjoy them all for what they are and what they aren't and everything in between and thank you very much for being with me and supporting the podcast that's all i gotta say oh and thank you to stand up records all right, everybody, go on iTunes, leave a nice review, five stars, that helps, and be well. Have a great week. Enjoy your lives. Do something. Experience something. Have fun. And tune in again next time.
Until then, bye-bye.